0: We hope you'll enjoy this episode of Women Worth Knowing. Make sure you rate us on your podcast app, subscribe, and share it with a friend. Hello, this is Cheryl Broderson. And Jasmine Olna. And we're going to be talking about some more
1: women from the Reformation. Yes, more women worth knowing for you today. So glad you joined us. Let's do it so today yes we're going to uh continue on with a couple more uh reformation writers we talked about olympia morata and victoria colonna and how the lord used them in italy of all places but there are a couple other gals that i just kept seeing pop up as in in my studies of other women and you know as you might recall from the previous episode you know, uh people connected to Marguerite of Navarre and Renee of France. You know, we have all of these interesting connections. And so I decided I was like, I want to find out a little bit more about uh, these two women as well. So uh, we're gonna start with a German, and her name was Argula von Argula von Grumbach. So okay. how do you spell I know, right? And it looks like name. it almost looks like arugula. I was thinking it's just, that's another it like. A a U. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Argula, A-R-G-U-L-A. I got it. Okay, so random. Anyway. I know, it just doesn't sound very flattering, but it must have been a very cute feminine name in German, in, I don't know, in well, Reformation I don't Germany. I think the name Myrtle sounds very good, but it's, it's, it's a beautiful name. tree. Yeah, you know, it is so. a beautiful tree, there but we go. But not Maybe to go off on that, <laughs> let's get back to. Yes, and now everybody just wants to have a salad because yes, I said yes. something about arugula. All right, so as a writer and a supporter of the Reformation in Germany, she's actually been likened to Catherine Zell, who we've talked about ah. before. Ah, yes. Another feisty one. Mm -hmm. So uh, she was called one of the great Protestant pamphleteers, um, quote, one of the most visible women in Germany to write on behalf of the Reformation. Again, that's why you see if you start studying the Reformation, she'll pop up and you're like, who is this lady? So, um, again, not commonly known, but she was there behind the scenes. I think pamphlets are so
0: interesting. I mean, we we had in the 60s and 70s, you would hand out tracts.
1: Oh, yeah, like
0: tracts. And tracts were like a little witness telling Mm -hmm. you, you know, here's—you know, this is— Things you need to know about Jesus that yeah. He loves you, and and so the pamphlets were in the same way getting people back to the scriptures and to faith in Jesus, and they were about salvation. Yes,
1: I love it. So hey,
0: that's a cool time. And there. sometimes too, because books were so expensive, yeah, they would do these smaller pamphlets to talk about different doctrines, mm-hmm. like the doctrine of sin, uh, the doctrine of salvation, right. the, the doctrine of the Trinity. They would do these in these pamphlets because they were
1: shorter, easier to publish less expensive yeah making things affordable you might even remember Catherine zell did that even with the uh the big german hymn book she would just take out portions and make small little uh sections for people to buy so that common people could learn you know christian songs and learn to sing about their faith in christ but especially because the hymns were full of doctrine so it was a way of getting doctrine into these people Excellent, exactly So one historian actually said of Argola that if she were a man, she would have been more readily recognized as one of the important Reformation figures. Mm. So, you know, just like, again, with some of these other folks that we've talked about, it's like uh, being a woman was a disadvantage uh, in that time and in that culture. But they learned to make the most of it and work around it as best they could. And the Lord did use them in pretty amazing ways. So uh, as it is, we don't know as much about her as we could. Uh, particularly her personal life, because lots of her letters were destroyed or lost. But we do know uh, some key things. First of all, Argola was born into a noble family, the von Stauff family of Bavaria. (laughs) And she grew up in a well-to-do, very cultured environment. That's how she was educated and was able to learn. Um, When she was 10 years old, her father gave her uh, what was called a Coburger Bible, It was a 1483 German translation of the Latin Vulgate. Um, So she grew up studying and loving the scriptures. And that's kind of an important point. We do um, normally point to Martin Luther as the translator of the German Bible, which he was. but he was the one who translated uh, from the original Greek and Hebrew. That's why it was the superior translation, the most uh, well-known, and, and again, eventually the most circulated and well-published. Prior to that, there were German Bibles being printed from the Latin Vulgate, so they weren't going to be quite as accurate. The Latin Vulgate had a, a lot of errors and some uh, translation questionable translation um, aspects and things like that, but uh, you know, hey, at least some form of the Bible was in people's hands, and then Luther really um, brought the a proper translation of the Bible to fruition. So when Argola was 15 or 16, she became a maiden waiting at the royal court in Munich. And shortly after that, it was in 1509, both of her parents died in the plague within five days of each other. Mm. I mean, gosh, when the plague struck, we've seen this over and over, it was just so devastating. Whole families completely wiped out. So uh, several years later, in 1516, she married a Bavarian landowner named Friedrich von Grumbach, and they had four children, and they settled in a town near Ingolstadt. And her husband was Catholic, but Argula by this time was starting to be influenced by Luther very early on. And so she raised their kids as Protestants. Mm. I know, very remarkable at that time. Uh, she hints in a couple of her writings that she and Friedrich had uh, a lot of tension in their marriage because of their differing beliefs, but she didn't back down from her association with the reformers. So a uh, real challenge, you got to imagine, just for family dynamics in general during this time. You know, we don't even think about that sometimes. Just one one parent wants to be Catholic, one wants to be reformed, and boy, that created issues. Um But she held her ground and she actually began to correspond frequently with Luther, with Philip Melanchthon, Luther's best friend, Mm -hmm. uh, others. By 1523, she'd read all of his German writings. So uh, according to one biographer, she believed and lived by two central principles of the Reformation, Uh, the priesthood of all believers. And she said, hey, this is biblical. And that gives me, even as a woman, authority to, to study scripture and even to speak publicly. So that was something she really held to. And then, of course, Sola Scriptura, which we've talked about before, the authority of Scripture alone. And that had been fostered in her just, again, by her love of the Bible from childhood. But those were kind of the, I don't know, the hallmarks of her faith and the principles that she wanted to really build her life and ministry on. And so she began really articulating her Reformed views in in writings in German that were uh, widely circulated. And it's really interesting because— in that time, you know, we're still coming out of uh, the Middle Ages when the, the the Church, what we would now call the Catholic Church, predominated, and and everything involving the Church, as far as like writings and teachings, were done in Latin. And so, Latin was still considered the primary language of of the educated, of the religious. Uh, and yet, Argula didn't speak or write in Latin. Mm. And so, normally, that would have discredited her as a theological writer, especially also the fact that she was a woman. But she was so masterful in her, in her German and in, in the way she could persuade that, you know, I mean, she still really um, made waves and people really paid attention to what she had to say. Um, Scherna says, having no skills in Latin was a deficiency in academia, yet Argula refused to let that hold her back. What she lacked in scholarly languages, she compensated for with her conviction and sense of Christian duty, her admirable Bible knowledge, and her excellent reading and writing skills in her mother tongue. And, you know, she also, when necessary, she would use her nobility to give her street cred if she (laughs) needed to pull rank a little bit here and there. Hey, you know, remember when the apostle Paul did that, when he pulled his Roman citizenship out at the proper time, (laughs) she would uh, do the same thing with her nobility. Like, well, hey, you know, let me just, uh, this gives me a little bit more, um, like I said, street cred, authority. And the Lord used that to give her a platform. So like Catherine Zell, she was willing to take on scholars, religious leaders in order to defend the Reformation cause, especially in issues that she felt were being neglected. Um, for instance, and this became what the, the moment, the event that really put her on the map um, uh, as a literary and uh, Reformation figure. In 1523, uh, she wrote a letter to the leaders of the University of Ingolstadt because they had forced uh, a student, his name was Arsatius Sehofer, um, to give up his Lutheran literature. And then they started imprisoning him and threatening him—threatening uh, to burn him to de- burn him at the stake, basically, if he wouldn't recant and deny his Lutheran views. I mean, really, just—this is what it, these people were up against, I mean, this constant threat and danger uh, for taking a stand. For the truth. For the truth. I know, it's crazy. And so this was a huge abuse of power. I mean, not only that, but this is a teenage boy. And so mm-hmm. it was kind of oh. like, my goodness, this is a little bit over the top, guys. And so she— um, Uh, she wrote this letter because they had uh, so pressured him and so just, uh, you know, abused him in a way that uh, ultimately he recanted his belief in tears. I mean, he was just crying and like, okay, okay, I'll deny, you know, uh, the faith and Luther and all of that sort of thing. And, and, you know, really his faith in Christ, it was just really gross. Mm -hmm. And so apparently nobody else was publicly speaking up against this. And she just saw this as such a, such a travesty. And so, She said, now I see that no man is ready to take up this matter and make himself heard. I am taking action. She's like, hey, if nobody will stick up for this kid who's being, you know, just intimidated and oppressed, I will do that. So she wrote uh, this letter, like I said, to the university and she condemned these men and said, I find it nowhere written in the Bible that either Christ or the apostles or any of the prophets imprisoned anyone. Like really, what authority do you have Mm -hmm. (laughs) biblically for doing something like this? So she challenged the university leaders to point out any heresy in Luther's writings. And of course they couldn't because what he said was based on scripture. It was just contrary to their traditions. And so she praised Luther's writings as grounded in God's word and that it was shameful and heretical really to denounce his writings and bully a kid like Seehofer. And so she wrote this, I mean, she was feisty. How in God's name can you and your university expect to prevail when you deploy such foolish violence against the word of God? I'm compelled as a Christian to write to you. Are you not ashamed that Sehofer had to deny all the writings of Luther who put the New Testament into German simply following the text? That means that the Holy Gospel and the epistles are all dismissed by you as heresy. Mm. God grant that I may speak with you in the presence of our three princes and the whole community. Uh, she declared of these leaders that over the word of God, they have no authority, not the Pope, not the emperor, nor the princes. I mean, she did not mess around. I mean, she even called for a public debate. She, as a woman, was not afraid to stand against these guys because she knew she had the truth on her side, the truth of God's word and the conviction of the Holy Spirit. Um, Of course, they, you know, conveniently ignored her. But this letter really put her on the map, um, both, you know, religiously and politically as an associate of the reformers, um, because even though she was addressing this one specific issue, her letter went viral. Uh, that happened a lot with re- letters. You could write them as kind of like a public statement and then they could get published. Like Pauline epistles. there we go. There we go, like the Pauline epistles, exactly. And that's what happened with this letter. And so it basically went viral, as we would say today, as a general call to reform, almost like the ninety five theses in a way. you know, Luther had been specifically addressing an issue in Wittenberg, right? But that went viral. the ninety five theses went viral once they were published. Same thing with this letter. It actually went through 14 editions in two months. I mean, it just spread like wildfire around Germany. So wisely, Argula wrote, the same day she wrote that letter to the university, she wrote to one of her family connections, Duke Wilhelm, uh, to get political support against the university. She's like, I need all all the help I can get. I know I'm a woman. I know my voice will probably not be heard um, as loudly as if I can get some other backing behind me. but again, and we have to remember, too, we might be thinking, well, why would she go to a political figure? Remember, guys, religion and politics were still very integrated, even uh, after the Reformation. It took time to work that out of everyone's system. And so the university leaders, not surprisingly, they never even gave her the courtesy of an official reply. And and it's sad because she actually expected this. That's why she had gone to uh, Duke Wilhelm to get more support. And yet she she just fear, fearlessly spoke out anyway. And and again, I, the university ended up looking pretty bad because her, her letter went viral all over the place. It was published abroad. And so, uh, you know, her boldness is just admirable, not just because she was a woman calling for a public debate. I mean, that was not only unheard of, it was actually illegal for a woman to do this but also because she was inviting debate in German, which was also unheard of. It wasn't even in Latin. It was in German. Uh, She also this is crazy. She lived in Bavaria, where Lutheranism was condemned at that time in the early years. I mean, Bavaria was still a Catholic stronghold. So all of this was amazing all these strikes against for those her. who
0: don't realize this bavaria was is um part of what is now germany yes and it's right above austria so it's kind of like the buffer zone between austria and germany which so, would have been
1: the holy roman empire at right. that time very Catholic. especially austria yes yes exactly so uh, this is not a small thing for her mm-hmm. to do this right. you know just write this little letter i'll just write a quick little note no this was a major statement and she knew all of the implications of this So not surprisingly, she began to face persecution, right, for what she had done. And I think that was a good indicator that she'd struck a nerve (laughs) because people started to get really upset. They didn't write a formal letter to her, uh, but they did talk a lot about her behind her back and complain about her, all of these uh, university figures. And so her husband actually lost his job, even though he was Catholic, and, and said, hey, I'm not with her on this. Uh, From then on, the family would struggle with financial difficulties. So she brought a lot back on to her own family by taking this stand. She was also, like I said, excoriated by the university leaders, not in a formal letter, but behind the scenes. They called her a female devil and a hag, and among some other unsavory names, which we don't need to get into. um, Clearly, (laughs) she struck a nerve, like I said, and had made an impact. Um, Apparently, there was even discussion about um, executing her for heresy. Uh, they were trying to figure out a way they could do this. but again, And she even
0: went to prison was, for a
1: while, right? Um, I, I have that in my notes. Okay, that that, she, yeah, that, that very likely happened. And so, uh, yeah. yeah, I'm not sure. She surprised. was imprisoned prison briefly. Not oh, briefly, okay, yeah. For presiding at a burial service. Oh, interesting. I mean, gosh, she just had a target on her back from mm-hmm. this point on. Mm-hmm. But she was so passionate for the true gospel to be preached that she said, I am prepared to lose everything, even life and limb. May God stand by me. I had intended to keep my writing private now i see god wishes to have it made public that i am now abused for this is a good indication that it's from god <laughs> so again she took it more as an encouragement not as a discouragement and so she may have seemed like a lone figure in bavaria but she did have support luther himself encouraged her he actually wrote about her to his friend uh, spalatin and he said the duke of bavaria rages above measure killing crushing persecuting the gospel with all his might that most noble woman, Argula von Stauffer, is there making a valiant fight with great spirit, boldness of speech, and knowledge of Christ. She deserves that all pray for Christ's victory in her. She has attacked the University of Ingolstadt for forcing the recantation of a certain youth, Arsatius Sehofer. Her husband, who treats her tyrannically, has been mm. deposed from his prefecture. What will he, What he will do, you can imagine. She alone among these monsters carries on in firm faith, though she admits not without inner trembling. She is a singular instrument of Christ. I commend her to you that Christ through this infirm vessel may confound the mighty and those who glory in their strength. So, wow. I mean, quite a, you know, that's a quite a, a statement by Luther mm-hmm. commendation by Luther advocating for her. Now I, I will say Luther was careful to avoid uh, a lot of public connection with Argula when addressing the issue, because even though he obviously appreciated agreed with her and would even write per- private letters about her as an outspoken woman, um, You know, there were times when (laughs) she might have been a little problematic to the cause he was trying to promote. But he did. He did totally support and appreciate her. And Argula obviously appreciated and respected Luther, but it's neat because she made it clear she didn't idolize him. It wasn't like, oh, I'm taking a stand for Luther. She was taking a stand for Luther because he was taking a stand for Jesus Mm -hmm. and for the gospel. Mm -hmm. And she said, I am called a follower of Luther, but I am not. I was baptized in the name of Christ. It is him, I confess and not Luther. And honestly, Luther himself would have wholeheartedly agreed with that. Remember, I've mentioned before how he didn't want anyone to even call themselves Lutherans. Uh, They were supposed to just call themselves Christians. And so I I think he appreciated that as well. So oppression, suppression of Lutheran literature increased. Argula's public uh, pamphlet writing decreased as a result, but she stayed involved with the Reformation as much as she possibly could. In fact, it's neat because uh, I I believe probably because she was In the nobility, she had resources. And so there are actually evangelical churches in rural German villages to this day that can trace their foundation back to her. Wow. So she had a role in establishing these little churches all over these little Bavarian villages. Really, really cool. So she was invited to uh, meet with sympathetic dukes at the Nuremberg Diet. Um, Diet, not like what we think of, not like Mm -hmm. the—yeah. Yeah. It was more of a religious, official religious meeting. All right. That's what a diet was back then. And so in 1523, uh, she went and did that. She also attended the Regensburg Diet in 1524. She tried to get Melanchthon and Bucer to work out uh, their differences on the Lord's Supper at Augsburg in 1530. So she was involved in a lot of these uh, councils and church meetings. Um, She lobbied on behalf of the poor, uh, the laity, the furtherance of the gospel, even though She was often frustrated by um, opposition, obviously, because again, she's right in the thick of it now with the Reformation. Uh, And then she also saw a lot of inaction from those who could make a difference. That's why she had written that letter in the first place. And so when she saw issues that weren't being addressed, um, even by other fellow reformers, she said, well, okay, I'll do it. Um, She didn't mind just putting herself right in the line of fire. So her husband uh, Friedrich was sickly, he died in 1530. And in 1533, she briefly remarried to a Protestant sympathizer named, I love this name, Count Papo von Schlick. Wow! And so, <laughs> he maybe she married him because she just loved his name. I don't know, but uh, he died two years later. So that was a very mm-hmm. short-lived marriage. Uh, three of her children also died somewhat early in life. So Argula dealt with a lot of hardship and a lot of sorrows. You know, she wasn't just this stone cold hard woman. Uh, she dealt with a lot of a lot of tragedy and um, you know personal trouble that drew her close to Christ for comfort. Uh, Unfortunately, we don't have a lot of concrete information on her later years. Um, Some accounts say that she carried on with the reform. Uh, Some accounts say she just quietly raised her family and tried to just stay uh, in evangelical circles as best she could. Um, But she died in obscurity as early as 1554 or as late as 1568, we don't know. (laughs) But uh, she really was a voice for women and for the Reformation cause of Sola Scriptura. Uh, Sterna said, Argula and Catherine Zell represent what could have been for Protestant women in the 16th century. She embodied the hopes of an emancipated lay person, more specifically, a lay woman. She embodied the zeal of the early evangelicals as she spoke out of conviction and confession as a Christian, as a Bible teacher, as a defender of people's religious rights, offering a lens to scripture that could have radical social as well as theological ramifications. And so even though she's not a household name uh, among the reformers today, um, she was never forgotten, especially in Germany. And and she's even in, in more recent years become more recognized and more prominent. And uh, historians now, one guy said, uh, are trying to let her voice be heard at long last um, to integrate her social critique, interpretation of scripture and her innovative lobbying and publishing, as well as her pioneering role for women uh, in Protestant scholarship. So I love that about her. You know, just uh, her willingness to really get in the front lines. I mean, at a time when that was just not done. Not Probably, done, especially by women. Especially by women, right? right? And that brings us to one last gal that I want to mention briefly. And her name was Marie Dantier, which you might— be. and I actually had to look up the French pronunciation of that to make sure I didn't totally butcher it. But I think that's right, Dantier. So she was French, obviously. Another bold and vocal reform figure— um, It was said that her role in the reforms in Geneva, especially as a leader among women, and her interpretation of the events as a female eyewitness cannot be overestimated. So she was born in the French nobility. Yes, eventually she'll make her way to Geneva, as we'll see. Uh, But she became an Augustinian nun when she was a young girl. And, of course, in the convent she got a good education um, and began to develop a solid understanding of theology and scripture. And that's interesting because the Augustinian order— was initially really open to luther's ideas luther was an augustinian monk originally and so i think there was a little soft spot for him among the augustinians and so she was exposed to um, the reformation and to luther's writings um, probably you know much more so than a lot of other nuns would have been in other kinds of convents so the fact that she was in augustinian convent was significant um around 1524 she left so she's in her late 20s at this point uh, she left the convent and became part of the reform movement in Strasbourg, which we've talked about before. Strasbourg's where the Zells were. Uh, remember Martin Bucer, who I've talked about, the Capitos. John Calvin was there for a time. So Strasbourg was a big Reformation hub. And so she wanted to get right into the thick of it there. Uh, she married a former French priest named Simon Robert, or probably Robert. Um, he had become a reformer as well. And when he died in 1533, she married another reformer. She's like, well, I'll just move on to the next one. Uh, his name was Antoine Fromant. And she went with him to join the Swiss Reform Movement in Geneva in 1535. And because it was Switzerland, of course, there's a mix of German and French there. Um, and so they, they felt like they could be, you know, used, that the Lord could use them there. And so. Uh, the first work attributed to her, the first uh, writing attributed to her, was actually an interpretive history of the Reformation in Geneva, which is interesting. Again, it was a—it wasn't like a, a true objective history. It was an interpretive history, and so the reformers actually used it as propaganda. But I thought that was kind of interesting that that was her first work was actually to record the history of what had gone on there, in Geneva. So she was very educated. She had a, like I said, a solid uh, foundation in biblical theology, which she put to good use. In her writings, when she was still in France, Marie had actually befriended, of course, no surprise, guys, Marguerite of Navarre. (laughs) And Marguerite uh, actually became the godmother of Marie's daughter. So that's what a—yeah, what what a close friendship they had. she
0: actually raised, too. Uh, Remember, she raised Renee. She raised— That's
1: right. Right, and Renee's Mm. nieces. uh, Yes, I forgot about that. Yes. Marguerite, like, man, what a— these yeah. women, just the umbrella of their influence, it's just mm-hmm. so remarkable. And the willingness to reach out to these young, kind of yeah. women.
0: Yes. yes. Yes.
1: And so, um, when it's interesting, so when Geneva, you know, again, that had been when she was in France. So now here she is in Geneva. Um, and when Calvin and Farrell got kicked out of Geneva in 1538, you might remember that from the podcast on um, Idolette de Bure Calvin. We talked about how they had been kicked out and then eventually went back. But during that initial movement uh, or that initial phase of the reform in Geneva, when Calvin and Farrell got kicked out, Marguerite wrote to Marie, knowing she was in Geneva, and said, Hey, what happened? Will you tell me what that was all about? What's going on with the Reformation there? Again, remember, Calvin was connected with Rene of France, with Marguerite. So uh, everybody was acquainted with each other, friends. They were like minded and, and just in the same cause. And so Marie wrote a response to. Marguerite, that was eventually published in 1539. Again, that happened a lot with some of these letters, especially letters written to institutions or among the nobility or to other aristocrats. You could write a letter, but also have in mind that it reach a larger audience. And so uh, that letter was eventually published as a very useful letter to Marguerite de Navarre. (laughs) And it does give an account of what happened in Geneva, including some of the infighting and the drama among the reformers, Mm -hmm. unfortunately. Mm -hmm. Um, But King points out that uh, Marie's main objective was to plead for Marguerite's continued defense of the Reformation. Don't lose heart. Mm -hmm. Please keep Mm -hmm. supporting this movement, as well as support for women's role in reform. She writes a lot about that. And I love this. This is something uh, that uh, Marie wrote. Um, Should Ruth be despised for being—and again, she's thinking of the wider audience of her writing here, not of Marguerite specifically— should Ruth be despised for being a woman who, when her story is chronicled in a book that bears her name? I should think not, given that she holds her place in the genealogy of Jesus Christ. What preacher was ever greater than the Samaritan woman, who did not hesitate to preach Jesus and his word? And who but Mary Magdalene can boast of having been shown the first manifestation of the great mystery of the resurrection of Jesus? Even though in all women there has been imperfection, men have not been exempt from it. <laughs> Why must women bear the blame, seeing no woman ever sold Jesus or betrayed him but a man named Judas? Who are they, I pray you, who have invented and contrived so many ceremonies, heresies, and false doctrines on earth, if not men? (laughs) Quite an argument there, using scripture and all of that to just show, like, hey, women can, you know, serve the Lord, too, and have a voice. Uh, King adds, Dantier exhibits her considerable knowledge of scripture and matters of Protestant doctrine, affirming the principle of justification by faith alone, attacking the sacraments of the mass and penance. So this letter was widely circulated until, of course, the religious authorities caught wind of it, the Catholic authorities, and started to suppress it. So Marie has been compared to Catherine Zell because of, uh, just like Argula uh, von Grumbach, because of her outspokenness in the Reformation cause and her active participation in the Reformation with her husbands. King humorously says, her irrepressible and irritating presence is recorded by various reformers. (laughs) (laughs) So kind of like Catherine Zell, you know, some of these gals, they just were so feisty that even the reformers sometimes didn't know what to do with them. I I think Arguleb maybe had a little more of a, I don't know, a a different kind of demeanor because she was able to, you know, like I said, get Luther's full support and all of that. But people like Marie or Catherine Zell sometimes were a little bit of a handful. Um, It seems her letter really made her more controversial because of her attack on male leadership than anything else. Not surprising when I read that quote to you there. That would definitely ruffle some feathers. The Genevan reformers were really offended by Marie's writings. Even the reformers, like I said, they actually censured Fremont, her husband, for not getting control of his domineering wife. Um, Remarkably, though, Fermat stayed by her side, he supported her writings, but it did create some tension in the marriage occasionally when she got a little bit feisty and out of hand. Calvin, in particular, was really irritated by Marie, (laughs) which is odd because Geneva was pretty egalitarian, and he had great relationships, like I said, with René of France, Jean de Albreu, you know, he knew Marguerite, but his complaint against uh, Marie, I think, really had to do more with her personality, not with her theology. You know, a lot of, again, a lot of these other women even Argola von Grumbach, their th- theology was so sound, it was easy to get behind them, but Marie had a particularly um divisive personality. You know,
0: it's interesting though cuz we're talking about women worth knowing that God uses all personality mm-hmm, types, mm-hmm. even
1: these that are a little bit grating. Yes, exactly. And it's telling that Fremont later remarked that the greatest regret of the council members of the uh, of the Reformation Reformation in Geneva uh, about their work was that they had been so wounded, piqued, and dishonored by a woman. So later, I think they came to realize, you know what, we were letting our pride get hurt a little bit here instead of listening to the content of what she was trying to say. And so it's it's kind of neat. There was some uh, redemption in that. And I'll see that again in a second. So clearly, Marie, was not one to avoid confrontation and controversy. For instance, this is so funny. In 1535, she went with two male reformers into a convent in Geneva and aggressively urged the nuns to leave the convent and get married. One Mm -hmm. nun who witnessed this and later became a reformer herself, she said Marie shared her personal testimony of leaving the cloistered life. And she said, oh, poor creatures, if only you knew how good it is to be next to a handsome husband. (laughs) It's just like, okay. yes. I mean, she was something else. (laughs) So, in spite of the controversy that constantly followed Marie, it's incredible that in 1561, Calvin, of all people, asked her to write a preface to his sermon on the modesty of women in their dress. Wow. And again, I think it's after so many years had passed, there's water under the bridge. These men, including Calvin, realized we were offended for no reason. That was just our pride and our dignity. This woman has a lot to offer, and he was able to recognize her merit as a scholar and theological writer. I love that. So. It's sweet to see that redeeming factor aspect happen. So suppressed and ignored after her death, Marie really was a powerful defender of God's word and the Reformation cause in her lifetime. And eventually, in 2002, her name was added to the Wall of Reformers in Geneva. So wow. it's neat to see these women yes. get some of that you know, recognition That's right. for all this time. And so. that's why
0: we want to bring you these women, because they're worth knowing, and they, they did do these amazing um, things in their time. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, I think about, you know, we talk about the biblical Esther, and you know, it was hard for her, but it w- she was raised up for such a time. Yes. For such a time as and that. They, we see with these women, what mm-hmm. they have in common is they were raised up for their times. Amen. And you mm-hmm. know, we say we do these podcasts because we want you to be inspired mm-hmm. that God wants to use you in these present times too. Yes. You were born for such a time as this. Love it's it. no mistake. So, mm-hmm. again, maybe you have a story. Maybe you know someone that has a story. We want to hear those stories. So yes. please write us at... WWK at That's right. <laughs> so until next week, and we come back to you, and you have to listen to us again for a full <laughs> 30, 35 minutes. Which you love. <laughs> you absolutely adore it. Uh, this is Cheryl Broderson and... Jasmine that ...saying... We'll be back next week. Thanks, Thanks for walk. joining us. Yes, yes we will. <laughs> Thank you for listening to Women Worth Knowing with Cheryl Broderson and Jasmine Olmet. For more information on Cheryl, visit CherylBroderson.com or follow her on Instagram or Facebook. You can also follow Jasmine on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook. If you think there is a woman worth knowing, we'd love to hear from you. Email us at wwk@cccm.com. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode. Make sure you've subscribed and don't forget to rate us on your podcast app and share it with friends. Thank you again for listening to Women Worth Knowing with Cheryl Roderson and Jasmine Allnut.